Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 7th, 2017, and my guest is author and economist Jason Barr. He is a professor of economics at University of Rutgers in Newark and author of Building the Skyline, The Birth and Growth of Manhattan Skyscrapers. And that book is our topic for today. Jason, welcome to EconTalk. It's great to be here. Thank you. I want to start with a quote from the book about the shape of the Manhattan skyline. And anybody who's driven into New York City or flown over it is struck by this. I've I've actually always wondered about it. And um, so we're, we're going to start with that. And here's the quote from the book. The Manhattan skyline has a particular shape. Skyscrapers rise at the southern tip and then just seem to disappear north of City Hall, reemerging near 34th Street in Midtown. Conventional wisdom holds that the shape of Manhattan's bedrock is the reason, but the contours of the skyline above ground have much less to do with the contours of the bedrock below ground. The depth to bedrock is a red herring. The geological roots of the skyline, rather, are tied to how it affected the initial settlement patterns on the island and economic growth from that point forward. You then continue. Skyscraper location and and heights were determined by where people were working and living at the time of their creation in the last decade of the 19th century. The location of these neighborhoods was determined long before that. The decisions made about where to live and work before the Civil War would lock in a particular trajectory for the city and the skyline would rise out of this history, end quote. So let's start with the geology briefly. Uh, what's the bedrock claim? Uh, obviously, you have to anchor uh, – you can't build a skyscraper in a swamp uh, on the top of a swamp directly. You need to do something below that swamp. So how does bedrock play a role in skyscraper construction? Um, sure. Well, the first the first part relates to this um, what I call the bedrock myth. Um, if you uh, look at the depth to bedrock from Manhattan in Manhattan, you'll notice that the depth. I mean, if you were able to look at maps or do uh, do some kind of uh, test borings or something, you would notice that the bedrock depths are relatively close to the surface in Lower Manhattan, and then they start to plunge into a kind of bedrock valley once you get north of uh, the city hall, uh, which is the city hall is sort of the northern end of lower Manhattan. And then you go into um, what today is Chinatown and Little Italy and the Lower East Side. And in these neighborhoods, the bedrock is very, very far below the sur- surface. And then this bedrock valley, um, it, it, it hits its lowest point in the Lower East Side, and then the bedrock goes closer and closer to the surface, so that at about 14th Street, um, the bedrock is pretty close to the surface. So ge- uh, geologists, the best I can, the best I can tell, uh, the best I can trace this idea that bedrock, the depth of the bedrock influenced the skyline, the uh, best I can tell it comes from a geologist who wrote a book about New York City, ge- New York City's geology uh, in about 1968, and his name was Chris Schubert. And so he wrote in his book about uh, New York City geology that one can't help but notice there are no skyscrapers where the bedrock is the deepest. 
And so this sort of gave rise to this conventional wisdom that this geological constraint influenced the shape of the skyline. So to the other question, so in, in my, in my is, book, yeah. Is it, true that it, is it true that you have to get down to the bedrock so it, is it, it, would, it would be more expensive, presumably, right. to anchor a skyscraper when bedrock is far from the surface? It just wouldn't be – it's still feasible, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, this, the short answer to your question is sort of, <laughs> and let me explain. Um, so in, in, in today, the technology, uh, the technology doesn't necessarily require getting to bedrock uh, uh, when you're looking at skyscrapers across the world. But let me just talk a little bit about Manhattan's uh, skyscraper history and, its founda- and, and the foundations. The original buildings... Um, well, the original low-rise buildings were just essentially built uh, on the, the layer of sand that sits on the bedrock. And as long as the buildings aren't very tall, it's, 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 it's not a problem. You can just basically build these spread-footing uh, foundations, and you could just build the building on, on, these, uh, on these foundations. But as buildings became heavier and taller in the second half of the 19th century, the new uh, foundation technologies needed to be implemented to make sure that the buildings didn't lean or settle or anything like that. And so the original technologies were using things like piles, where they would just drive these long wooden piles into the sand and the, and the till until the pile stopped moving downward, and then they would, uh, then they would build, the, they would build uh, the foundation on top of these piles, and, and that was fine. But then when steel came along and elevator technology was implemented, buildings got much taller and much heavier, and so piles weren't a good solution. There were some experiments with, with these like concrete mats that were meant to stabilize the building. But the real problem for lower Manhattan is that the bedrock itself is below the uh, water line. So after you, if you dig and dig, if you dig and dig, eventually you're going to get this wet like viscous uh, sand and till. And so as, as buildings become heavier and heavier in New York City, the, the, technology, um, the technology required was to anchor the buildings to the bedrock because um, the bedrock wasn't that far down and um, that just seemed the best way <laughs> to build uh, foundations to anchor the skyscrapers because of this wet soil and sand that was uh, sitting on top of the bedrock. Um, but, but the truth is, so so that was how that became the, the, the this caisson technology. This is where they would um, basically pump compressed air into a a box without a bottom and then dig 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 until this box hit the bedrock. Then they'd fill the box with cement and build. Uh, Foundation piers from there, and then they would build the building uh, on these on top of these piers to stabilize the building. So, to your other question about um, Lower East Side, where the bedrock is very far uh, down, I mean, I've over the years I've been uh, just uh, crunching the numbers and looking at the costs and benefits of skyscraper construction in the early uh, part of their history in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and it's just clear that once you start looking at the data. This idea that the bedrock depths was somehow a barrier that just doesn't hold up. It, so it's a sort of a case where um, a geologist sees a correlation between where skyscrapers are and the bedrock depths, and then sort of makes the next leap that somehow those bedrock depths were causal. Um, based on my my data and based on my and, and based on the research that I did, 
if there was a demand for skyscrapers in the Lower East Side, for example, or, or the neighborhood that which is today Chinatown, engineers, architects, and developers would have been able to find so technological solutions to provide uh, those skyscrapers there. So, so yeah. So when I look at the yeah. skyline, I've always assumed, uh, as an economist, that there's a law <laughs> that's uh, stopping or some kind of regulation that's making it infeasible because it it's very unnatural for given the land values of New York City for it to be economically profitable to build really tall buildings in midtown Manhattan and really tall buildings in the southern tip of Manhattan lower Manhattan but not in between so we're going to get to that and as you talk about there are there are some laws um right. but let's talk about the evolution of of the residential and and work patterns I mean it's what's beautiful about your book is it goes back a very long time and it starts with the earliest days of New York City when most of the population lived down by the tip uh, because of the presence there of the port and the fort. Uh, the rest of it was farmland, wilderness, woods, this island that now has 2.3 million people. When we start <laughs> in colonial times, we're talking about, what, 60,000 people maybe living down uh, mostly at the bottom? Uh, yeah, during – well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I mean the – Literally, uh, when the Dutch uh, when the Dutch arrived with the you know with the formation of the Dutch West India Company, uh, Dutch arrived. I mean, the initial settlers there was maybe a, a couple of hundred people living on the island of Manhattan, and uh, sure, over the uh, 17th century and 18th century, uh, New York City grew very relatively slowly. And uh, yeah, so by the um, um, I don't have the number at the top exact top of my head, but sure by the uh, like the English colonial period, there was um, you know there was just a, maybe a few thousand people, ten thousand, twenty thousand people, and it wasn't really until the eighteen twenties when New York City's population really started its dramatic takeoff. Um, so um, yeah, so so how did the population spread north? What are some of the patterns that? that uh, happened as, as the population spread north. And, of course, north uh, today might be Westchester County uh, or right. even Albany <laughs> or Rochester, but right. uh, that's all upstate. But in the early days, north was like 20th Street, right, because there was <laughs> yeah, nothing. Yeah, that was very north. Uh, one of the things I have in my book is sort of the footprint, the evolution of the footprint um, of Manhattan over the course of the um, 19th century. And, yeah, I mean, so basically the northern footprint um, – it just kept moving north and more as the population grew. But I think to your question, though, is basically um, between the founding of of, uh, of New York, which was originally New Amsterdam in about 1626, and uh, about 1830. So in, in that, um, you know, almost two centuries, most of the people who lived in New York City, which was then Manhattan, lived on the lower tip. And the reason was because there was no uh, public transportation. There was no mass transit. I mean, for most people, the way to get around was walking. And so in that way, um, the geographic footprint of the city was just constrained by, um, you know, access. Uh, and so most of the activity was around the port and around the fort. And what I think was interesting when I, when I started collecting uh, data from the, uh, the these old directories, so the old directories were, I guess, the precursor to the phone books, and I guess phone books don't exist anymore because of the internet. But 
from uh, starting in the late 1700s, uh, every year, um, one or more companies would pr print these directories, which contain information about where people were living, where they were working, what kind of jobs they were uh, employed in. And so by collecting this old data, um, you could see where people were living and working in the early part of uh, the 19th century, in the early 1800s. And what you see is that most of the people are uh, clustered in the lower tip of Manhattan, and that the very wealthy people are actually living in the heart of the city, and the lower-income people, the lower-skilled people, are living on the northern areas of the city. But then around 1830 or so, with the introduction of horse-drawn streetcars, this was the first time that uh, you witness uh, commuting to work. So the wealthy people, those who can afford to take public transportation, actually kind of left the heart of the city and moved to the northern fringes of the city. And so areas, for example, uh, around like Washington Square Park became sort of wealthy enclaves. And the lower-income people, the, the, the lower-skilled people, still remained... Um, in the neighborhoods that the historical working class neighborhoods, but those historical working class neighborhoods were now in the center of the city and the wealthy people were on the northern fringes. And so once the streetcar was, um, once the streetcar tracks were laid down and kept moving north, it just sort of increased the pace at which the population was moving north on the uh, island. It's ironic because we think today, which is true, that public transportation is mainly for lower income people who can't afford a car. <laughs> I assume yeah. there were some wealthy people who had horses, but in general, right. as you say, most people travel by foot, and public transportation was an incredible luxury because it was it cost money, whereas walking was uh, no out, there was no out of pocket cost in terms of cash. So exactly that kind of that sprawl you point you really pointed out is sort of the beginning, an early example of what we now call sprawl of, of suburban life. People wanting to live. Uh, farther away and presumably with slightly larger, uh, less density, um, exactly. larger properties, more expensive properties per square foot. Um, and how far north are we talking about with that street, with that horse-drawn streetcar? Well, in the 1830s, 1840s, we're really only talking about what is today Washington Square Park. We're talking about like 14th Street, yeah. Lower Fifth <laughs> Avenue. Yeah, it's not very far. So, no, no, no. I mean, it's only a few, um, like a couple of miles, you know. I mean, streetcars were not, uh, th while they were much more convenient and they would, uh, they would you know, they, they would arrive every five minutes at a particular place, for example, but certainly uh, they were streetcars and so they were, they're like, somewhat like buses today, you know, you would, they would move forward a block, they'd have to stop, move forward, and so they, they were not like today's automobiles. So, so when did, when yeah. did Midtown which would be, say, 34th Street and North, when did it start to become more populated and why? Well, it really began uh, in earnest. I mean, the roots of Midtown actually began, I would say, after the Civil War. Um, so really in the 18, early 1870s is when you start to see the seeds of Midtown itself. And the reason is because this process of, of upper... Of, of upper class families and, and middle class families moving north on the island. As they moved north, as the streetcar lines continued to to uh, 
to be laid to move people further and further north, you see this northward movement of upper and middle class households. And what happens is the shopping, the the big uh, the big retail and entertainment, uh, the re- entertainment. Um, you know, theaters and uh, restaurants are sort of following these uh, these households, and so after the Civil War, a lot of the retail is just uh, is just moving north, and moving north, and so for example, it, it, they wind up moving to uh, um, you know, restaurants and hotels, and and theaters wind up moving to Madison Square and also Union Square. Union Square is around 14th Street, Madison Square is around 23rd Street, and so it's. Um, it's when this retail and when the entertainment districts start forming in these neighborhoods that Midtown as a kind of commercial hub starts to form. So this is really taking place, you know, in the 1870s and the 1880s. So before, before we get to why then skyscrapers came there rather than elsewhere, let's talk about the technology of skyscrapers and, and what made them possible. And as you point out, uh, until late um, – I think I have the dates right. Late part of the 19th century, it really wasn't very profitable to build a building more than five stories tall because nobody wanted to walk up five flights of stairs. Excuse me, it's before it's mid 19th century. Mid 19th exactly. century, before the elevators invented and is safe. There's no um, more than five stories is a bummer. And in fact, you, you point out yeah. that that people paid. A premium to live on the lower floors, whereas, of course, with an elevator, people pay a premium to live on the higher floors. So exactly. uh, how did that – talk about that evolution and how the move – once elevators came along and steel, it became possible to build really tall buildings. Well, um, so let's see. A lot of this technology was sort of floating around in different forms. I mean steel obviously had been around for the railroads and elevators had been around uh, – you know, as early as I think the 1830s or 1840s, it, definitely by the 1850s, uh, the technology for elevators was there. And um, there's a famous example of uh, Elijah Otis uh, unveiling his safety brake at at, uh, an, ex- at an exposition in, in New York City in the uh, early 1850s. And so once people realized that elevators were safe and um, that there were some safety brakes that would prevent an elevator from free falling, um, you know, building uh, developers realized that there was, um, you know, there's basically profit opportunities, a way to innovate uh, to essentially create uh, buildings that were f- fulfilling a demand. And the first skyscrapers in New York City were all in lower Manhattan. Um, you know, there was these uh, tremendous industrial agglomerations. You had the print media industry, uh, which is called Newspaper Row, which is across the street from, uh, which is, which was today across the street from City Hall, and um, Pace University is in that area today. And then you had Wall Street and the financial sector, for example. And so these industries, were they just had these tremendous forces of agglomeration. There was just tremendous forces pulling these firms together, the businesses to be together. And this was just creating tremendous pressure on the land values and developers, if they were, you know, they were paying a lot of money for the land, and they're saying, okay, well, if we have to pay all this money for the land, there has to be a way for us to, um, you know, so to recover our investment. And so the uh, developers just started searching for, for technological um, means to to supply the building space. And so, in around it was around the 1880s. 
18, early 1890s when engineers realized that you can get rid of masonry load-bearing walls. One of the fundamental, blo- uh, the fundamental barriers to building tall um, before steel was the fact that the walls themselves were made of masonry, brick or stone, and they had to bear the load of the building. So as the building got taller and taller, the the thickness of the walls on the ground, on the bottom floors had to become um, proportionately thicker to hold the weight of the of the building itself. And so, what would happen is, if you built more than six or seven or eight stories, those walls became incredibly thick and would just eat it would eat into the amount of rentable space on the lower floors, and it just wouldn't make it profitable. Uh, in that regard, and then second, second, as you said, without elevators, uh, the the amount of money coming in at the upper floors was just less and less. So you had thicker walls on the bottom, and you had less money coming in on the upper floors. All of those made it uneconomical to build tall. But then when steel came, and steel allowed for the ability uh, for the to eliminate the walls bearing the load, the steel beams could now bear the load, and so the walls of the building became, you know, as they called them, they were just mere curtains. They were just uh, windows and just facades to hold out the elements. And so it was steel that allowed buildings to become taller and taller because the steel beams were so strong, they didn't need to be nearly as thick. And the space, uh, you had roughly the same amount of space on the ground floors as you did on the upper floors. And then the elevators, of course, like you say, they created this rapid transport up to the upper floors and but there at is, that point, yeah. But there is this incredible constraint, which I, I'd never really thought about, of as you start to add more floors, you have to add more elevators because there's more and more people on those additional floors needing to get on the elevator at the bottom. You exactly. can't get on the elevator on the 20th floor and just use it for the last. You could. Right? You, could yeah. you could walk the first 20 floors. But that's not very appealing. So you've got to have an elevator that goes from the bottom to the top. Exactly. And once you do that, as you're adding more <laughs> floors, you need more and more people, which means you have to add additional elevators. And as you do that, you're devoting less and less space to rental and income-generating footage, square footage, because the elevators are, in, are eating up part of the, the core of the building. I mean, that's just an incredible trade-off that inevitably – um, reduces the the optimal height uh, or constrains the optimal height of a building for economic return. Uh, yeah, absolutely, exactly. So, uh, right. So there are certain cool rules of thumb in the in, in the industry in the engineering industry that if you want to go a few more floors, you have to add an extra building shaft, an extra elevator shaft, and you have to eat it to the rental of space. So uh, you're 100% right. It, it, it just introduces a trade-off. But um, once the steel and the elevators were there, um, it, sort of the engineering constraints to height were more or less eliminated. And then the fundamental question becomes this economic question about whether adding that extra elevator shaft to go taller and taller generates enough revenue with those extra floors. And at the end of the day, it's it's... In some sense, it's just a it's a cost benefit analysis, and it's just supply and demand. It just, it just it's just determined by how much people are willing to pay to be on those top floors, and whether it justifies exactly the reduced space overall. So yeah, no, I think it's a totally fascinating kind of uh, dilemma, if you will. 
<laughs> and and engineers and architects and developers are just they're just trying to you know they're all the time they're just trying to figure out how to use new technology to make elevators more efficient and how to make uh, how to optimize the, that um, that elevator space in order to kind of reduce the amount of space and to move people up and down faster. It's actually, it's actually hard to think of a more important technological breakthrough than that safety break in transforming urban life. You know, that's, I mean, the steel is important too, obviously, but that safety break, that seemingly small thing to make people comfortable getting on an elevator, which we yeah. never think about anymore. Well, yeah, you might, if you're a physics student, occasionally it's, there are good physics problems involving elevators in free fall, but, um, <laughs> but in general, th- that's such a transformative insight by Otis. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it was just, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's just based on our human, f- our natural fear of 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 of, of, of heights in some way. So you have to do whatever you can to eliminate people's fear of heights. And I agree, it's just one of those transformative technologies that enabled uh, <laughs> the rise of modern skylines. And you you call them vertical roads, which I think is a really nice way to think about it. And of course, you can walk a vertical road, you can take the stairs, but yeah. it's because uh, of gravity, you kind of uh, you're eager to get on that elevator when you're on the 50th or 80th floor. Um, yeah. For sure, and people will pay. Exactly, like you said earlier, in before elevators, the the most expensive floor was the second, the first to the second floor above the street level. So, uh, yeah, talk so about people we wouldn't. Have, yeah, go on. So sorry. talk talk about the. A lot of people have a, a, a intuition that's wrong, which is that well, land is fixed, just a fixed amount of land. I mean, Manhattan is just. Whatever its size is, but you point out that Manhattan gets bigger in two ways: uh, skyscrapers and landfills. So, talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, when the Dutch came, uh, in, the Dutch settled New York uh, or New Amsterdam in in, in in you know sixteen sixteen twenties. In many respects, they saw um, uh, a place that was somewhat familiar. For example, compared to Amsterdam, uh, there were wetlands, um, and there were low, yeah, there were low-lying wetlands, and there were channels. And so, when the Dutch came, they started doing the kind of things that they were familiar with in back in in the Netherlands. They started digging canals, they started filling in marshlands, um, and so, in many respects, one of the things that the Dutch started when they came to New York was this idea of creating land. Um, by draining, you know, by draining wetlands and by creating these channels that would uh, also help drain the wetlands, and and then when the um, and, and when the English took over the colony in uh, 1664, um, and the and the uh, and the Lower Manhattan began to um, expand. Well, because of the foot, I mean, there wasn't very, you know, because of walking and, 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 and lack of transportation, because of people relying on their feet to get around, the natural thing to do was to extend the boundaries of lower Manhattan to, to, to create uh, made land and infill. And so bit by bit, the blocks of lower Manhattan moved further and further out into the, uh, initially into the East River. And one, one of the interesting benefits of actually expanding the shoreline was that the Ships that were coming into the port uh, could dock their ships on made land next to the made land and still be in deeper water. So there was also this um, 
pulled to expand the shoreline outward in order to um, make the port more efficient because uh, this way the ships didn't have to remain uh, in deep water and then shuttle the, the goods in. So uh, between the Dutch and the English, there's just this tradition of expanding the city through, uh, in, through um, landfill as a way to uh, provide more access and, and to improve the, the efficiency of the port. Um, so in that regard, um, you know, some estimates of Lower Manhattan, some estimates for Lower Manhattan are that the compared to the original original size of Lower Manhattan, it's expanded some thirty to fifty percent, and um, which is a shockingly large number. I would never have imagined. I would have said five. You know. Yeah. Well, this is Lower Manhattan, so this is south of what is the City Hall today. Um, there are areas around uh, other neighborhoods that have been expanded uh, north of that. Uh, it's less. It's less because part of the reason is because um, you know in in the middle and the in the west part of the island, it's just it's pretty high. The elevation is fairly high and above ground. It's just um, close to the port. Yeah, where there's more of a need to expand the city, and, and that I would argue is mostly due to again the fact that when the city is growing and there's not mass transit. It seems expanding into the rivers was the natural way to go. So to um, come, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and of course the other way was of expanding land is you just build a building with more than one floor. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in my exactly, exactly. In the way I think about it too is that sky, the skyscraper is a form of land in the sky. I mean, what is land? Land is geography. Land is an ability, a, a place where people can do things, whether it's living or working, and so. You can think of land on the ground or land on the sky. Uh, it's again, it's just satisfying a, a need for people to be together, people to work together, live together, um, <clears throat> to satisfy all of the the things that uh, that we need to do. And you know, the the, the and it, we need to be together. It's whether it's for work purposes or or just relying on services and 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 and, 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 and amenities. And so exactly, so land can be on the ground or land can be in the sky. That's, have, the way, that's the way I think of it. You have an incredible statistic here. You say, I calculate that the total usable building space of skyscrapers in Manhattan is 30 square miles of land, in quotes, yeah. over 100% <laughs> the size of Manhattan Island. For all buildings on the island, furthermore, for all buildings on the island, the approximate total usable floor area is 62 square miles. So Manhattan itself is something like 30 square miles. Is that right? No, I think it's actually it's only I think it's only about twenty. I want to say twenty. Uh, yeah, twenty something. Top of my yeah. Let's say it's twenty to thirty. Let's just say exactly ballpark. So there's uh, been yeah. a tripling of that when you include all the buildings, not just the skyscrapers. Uh, they've added an additional uh, doubling. They've they more than doubled and and added sixty two square miles of floor space. Um, so they more than doubled the size of of the island. I said triple because I was. It's the used, total usable floor area. But, of course, there's right. roads and parks and all that, too. But the bottom line is Manhattan has gotten dramatically larger uh, in its in its uh, four centuries, almost four centuries of, of existence. And it can get much larger still if regulations and, and incentives were there for that to happen. So let's talk about what happened in the last part of the 19th century. So sort of the, the skyscraper era is late 19th century to – really 1930s or so is when there's this enormous increase in uh, in skyscrapers building, uh, getting built in, in, in Manhattan. What what was going on? 
Well, uh, fundamentally, I mean, it's just the, uh, the, at the at the heart of it is just the rapid growth of New York City and and Manhattan as the center of finance. Uh, the center uh, it, it, was a, uh, it had a tremendous industry. Um, you know, for example, the the uh, uh, ladies' garments, uh, New York City and Manhattan, Manhattan was the number one uh, center of manufacturing of, of women's garments. Uh, people might not recognize that today because today's garment industry is is something of a, a you know a shell of what it was in in its heyday in the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, so, in New York City was a manufacturing hub. Uh, Wall Street was booming. The uh, advertising, print media, all of these different industries were just clustered downtown. And so, I, like I said earlier, engineers, architects, and developers were working to figure out how to create more land on a land-constrained island. And so, when the skyscraper emerged, um, it you know developers found themselves uh, having you know creating um, a profitable profitable form of real estate, and uh, you see an initial boom, and then, um, so more or less, there was an initial boom from the 1890s to uh, just a little bit, to about 1913, and then you have a downturn in World War One, and then starting in the early 1920s, you see a second boom uh, that was just uh, related, uh, as I talk about in the book, the the, the building boom of the 1920s following World War One was... Um, was really an attempt to modernize uh, Manhattan. There was uh, a tremendous need for office space in a way that had never existed before in um, in U.S. history. And so, the building boom in 1920s represents the the tremendous demand for service for to house services uh, industries, uh, corporate headquarters, and 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 marketing and legal. Uh, you know, legal services, and so uh, the Roaring 1920s represents the kind of the the skyscraper boom to house the growing services industry. And as you point out, you know, obviously, you spend a reasonable amount of time in the book. You don't focus on it. But you spend a reasonable amount of time on the book on the ego issues of right. builders showing off and the desire to have the tallest building and all that. But you also point out, which I thought was the more as the economist in me, the, the, I mean, I'm interested in the ego part. I think there's something to it. But as right. you point out, the cost of adding a floor went down during this time period. Yeah, exactly. Why was I mean, that? So, uh, why was it? Because um, I would say there's two reasons. One is the logistics of, of building these things uh, had – um, had been worked out, if you will. So over in the 40-year in the period, let's say from 1890 to 1930, uh, these builders had, all, you know, 40, 40 years of figuring out how to, um, how to build these structures quickly and efficiency, efficiently. And so there was a very steep learning curve that uh, helped to, um, you know, as the, as the builders moved up this learning curve, it just helped them reduce the cost of construction. And then that combined with, uh, you know, the reductions in the price of steel uh, over time because of economies of scale and, uh, you know, perhaps access to low-wage uh, low labor uh, with, with immigration also helped contribute to, um, uh, to uh, lower building costs. So um, it was basically, a, I would argue, a learning-by-doing process uh, that as, de- as developers built more skyscrapers, they became more efficient at doing it, and it just helped lower the price of building space. 
And so that also helped to contribute to the rise of these super tall skyscrapers in the 1920s. They, just by the, by the mid, late 1920s, the know-how to, had, the know-how to make these structures was just so much, um, so much more than it had been 20 or 30 years earlier. And so they were able to deliver these, this floor space, this new land, much more efficiently. So I'm going to just go, I've got to go back to elevators for a minute because two, sure. two important um, uh, facts that I've, I wanted to mention that I got out of your book. One is shocking. Uh, in general, skyscrapers must devote about 30% of the total space to elevators, including their shafts, hallways, and machine rooms. So that's something you just, you just don't notice or think about uh, as a user of a skyscraper. But the part I found even more, that's fascinating, but even more interesting is how elevators have gotten faster over time, so, yeah. especially if you think of them as vertical roads and as as uh, elevators as, as sort of the railroad of the sky. Uh, you say in, in New York, the Woolworth Building, which was the tallest in the world at the time of its completion in 1913, which was what, something 55 stories? Yeah, 55 stories, exactly. So it could run two cars at 700 feet a minute. So in the Woolworth Building, it was going about eight miles an hour, an elevator in 1913. Yeah. Uh, today, um, the elevator at Burj Khalifa, which uh, is in where? Dubai? It's in uh, Dubai. Dubai. Yeah. It goes yeah. 40 miles an hour. 40 yeah. miles an hour. So that's a rather uh, – it's a five-fold increase in speed. And as, as you point out um, – as you say, since 1931, they've increased by a factor of three and a half. Uh, yeah. Maximum speeds increased at an average rate of 1.7% since 1913. So that's an, just, that again, an example of how yeah. technology and innovation and incentives work to make things more feasible than they were before. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Actually, the, the, the funny, I don't know if it's funny, or the, the interesting thing about elevators today is them actually moving too quickly because what happens is uh, uh, if people get to the elevator and their miss ears start to pop, what's that? You can miss your floor if you're not. Exactly. <laughs> Forget to push the button in time, change your mind. It's too late. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's actually about the, sort of the experience. I mean, it could be painful yeah. to get into an elevator that's moving too quickly. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that you, the, the technology is basically having a long steel cable move uh, a box up and down. So at some point... The ability to produce cables strong enough and long enough to move people up, you know, 120, 150 floors because it starts to become constrained. So, um, so the, in, the, in, 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 t- in t- today's uh, skyscraper market, the issues are how to move people up quicker and quicker without them feeling uh, feeling it and feeling that the, the ears bursting and things like this. And we clearly need. A rest stop so the Sherpas can put down the stuff. You, know, you go up about 120 <laughs> floors, take a break, drink a cup of coffee, uh, take exactly. eat a protein bar. Um, so let's. So this these technologies get better. There's learning by doing. There's this explosion of um, taller buildings, some of which driven by ego, but most of it driven by economics. People simply finding it profitable given the increased uh, demand for land in the city. So here's my question. To come back to our original question, why did those tall buildings occur in Midtown rather than somewhere else in in the nineteen the eighteen eighty to nineteen thirty period? Because um, 
if we, we have to go back to, uh, again, the earlier story about the, the public transportation, this horse-drawn streetcars that were being innovated in uh, the 1830s. So as the wealthy were suburbanizing, so to speak, and they were moving north on the island, uh, the retail and, and the, the commercial businesses were following the middle class. And so they were following them. Um, and so they wound up, uh, the retail and the, and the entertainment, the commercial started setting up shop between uh, Union Square and Madison Square between 14th Street and 23rd Street. And so that's the story. Because what was happening is in the, the historical uh, working class neighborhoods, which were on the northern part of the city uh, before the streetcar, remained in the center of the city, which, and the center of the city at that point was north of City Hall, but, lower, uh, but, but south of 14th Street. So those became the tremendous immigrant, the, 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 the huge immigrant enclave. So, so in 1840s, when the potato famine hit in Ireland, the Irish who were coming to New York were living in uh, what was then Five Points, for example, which is today sort of, uh, uh, you know, Chinatown area, uh, Little Italy area. And so they were moving, the, the, the Irish who were hurt by the potato famine were moving to New York and living in the historical working class districts, the working class districts that had been in existence since, let's say, the early 1800s. And so the uh, middle class are moving north, the businesses are following, and so uh, when, the, um, when the amount of commercial activity hits, hit a certain threshold, uh, and land values became high enough, then skyscraper developers realized, okay, in Midtown, there's a profit opportunity to build a skyscraper. And this happened around 1900. Um, and so once, once skyscraper developers saw this uh, profit opportunity north of 14th Street, uh, then it set in motion um, the building of, of high-rise buildings, and this kind of created a positive feedback loop in Manhattan. So the point is that there are no skyscrapers south of 14th Street and north of City Hall, not because of the bedrock, but because of this historical demographic evolution, that the working-class districts remained working-class districts, and there were, no, there were very few incentives for developers to build skyscrapers in the uh, working-class districts and the ethnic enclaves, such as Five Points and the Lower East Side, but there was tremendous incentives for them to build skyscrapers north of 14th Street, where there was the, um, the demand for them. And, and that was related to originally uh, retail, and then you saw a movement of architects and builders, and the garment industry was moving there, and, and you know, Macy's had moved to Herald Square. And so all these industries were tied together, creating tremendous pressure on land values in Midtown, and then giving rise to skyscrapers. And the, the first skyscraper north of Lower Manhattan was the Flatiron Building on 23rd Street, uh, which is still there today. Not very Beautiful tall, though. Structure. How tall is it? Oh, well, yeah, well, that's 20 right. something. That's a good. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. It's, a, it's approximately 30 stories or yeah. 20, 20, 25, 30 stories. I don't know exact number, but yeah, that was considered very tall. Um, it's a beautiful building. Back in the day. Yeah. So someone, someone should write a book called uh, Potatoes and Pogroms uh, because <laughs> the Irish and the Jews, as you point out, you also include, there's also the Germans and the Italians. They, they were the, the bulk of the immigrant population in this time period of late 19th century to early 20th. And they wanted to live near each other for all kinds of reasons. And so tenements were created. And as, as I think I have the argument right, uh, 
it's not profitable to build uh, a tall tenement building because the willingness to pay to compensate for those elevator costs isn't going to be there among lower-income people. The puzzle then is so, – so the, the tenement world, the world where immigrants live between north of City Hall and, and south of 14th Street, that's going to be lower-built, lower-sized-height buildings where relatively low-income people live. The question is why didn't they get pushed out? So why didn't um, – the expansion of – and, of course, I was just to interrupt my train of thought for a sec, it's true that there's some taller buildings north of 14th, but there aren't a lot of really tall buildings. So when you, again, look at the skyline from New Jersey, you see what looks to be just nothing between uh, – I would say it's more like closer to 34th. The Empire State – south of the Empire State Building, you don't get right. a lot of tall buildings until you get to the, to the southern tip. Yeah. Uh, and so the puzzle then is why didn't it become economically feasible to build taller buildings? Like why wasn't the Flatiron Building torn down and replaced by a 70-story condo that would attract higher income, higher paying people? And as you point out, that's because of – if I think I have it right – zoning and taxes, uh, special kinds of taxes that were put in place first in uh, – if I have it right, 1911 – and then uh, again, somewhat in 1961. But it, it's that which locked in. It's those regulations that locked in the existing patterns of work and, and residence that, that we see today. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I would argue it's, it's mostly on the zoning end, the, the building regulations end. Um, and so I mean, explain. today, the t- yeah, I will. That today, the tax issue is much more complicated today because it involves subsidies and. Uh, and um, tax, you know, uh, uh, tax breaks and all these things. It's very much more complicated today. But to go back to the zoning issue, so uh, the, you know, in the year 1890, for example, um, the the only real uh, regulations on uh, specifically on commercial buildings and tall buildings uh, in general were just related to safety. You know, um, uh, how thick the steel had to be and so forth. So there were no height regulations or anything like that. Um, so the 1890s, uh, people f- for the first time really started to see what to them was a very tall buildings. I mean, 20 story buildings was incredibly tall. I mean, if you imagine a world where uh, you live in a world where everything you know is, is, is 10 stories or less and, and the tallest structure you know is the, the church spire, then all of a sudden you see these, these buildings become higher and higher uh, compared to the church spire that you, you're familiar with, all of a sudden you know, it creates a certain anxiety among people. Um, and they became worried that maybe they weren't safe. They became worried that maybe they, they were going to start to block out the sunlight of the neighboring structures. They were started, people started to worry that there was going to be too much uh, c- uh, congestion on the street because there were so many people in these neighborhoods. And so uh, throughout the early 20th century, uh, people were saying, well, you know, these building heights aren't, regulated and if unchecked you know we may create more of these uh, urban uh, problems uh, and so in the early 1900s people started thinking about ways to regulate uh, tall buildings in Chicago they basically just said in the 1890s that's it uh, we're just going to limit the height of the building and um, 
you know, buildings in the loop can't be more than so many, like 100 feet, and then they changed it to 200 feet and so forth. But so basically in, in Chicago, they had just outright building height caps. In New York... Of course, those, um, of course those were very popular with people who already built a tallish building because it reduced <laughs> competition for that land. Yeah, absolutely. This is, price. What it seems to be is that some of the people, so some of the people who were lobbying for height caps were people who were worried about fire and safety, for example, because they felt that, you know, a 20 story building, you'd have all these people up there and it would be very difficult to get them out. But other people, like developers, if, if there was a glut of space, then a developer would say, yeah, height caps, a great idea. <laughs> no, it's a classic bootlegger and Baptist example that we've talked about many times on this program. You have the civic-minded or kind-hearted people uh, making an alliance with the uh, self-interested people and the kind-hearted people, the Baptists who are trying to look out and say people from Demon Rum, say, are yeah. giving cover to the developers who can say, oh, yeah, yeah, we can't we can't have people up there. It's too risky. We should just limit this. If it's for our own good. Uh, so that's yeah. a very natural um, American <laughs> and worldwide problem. Well, as, as, as something of a side note, I tried to look at the relationship between height caps in Chicago and how that influenced building in New York and vice versa. And nice. <laughs> there does seem to be some evidence. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's admittedly hard to tease out, but based on the data that I collected and the, and the statistical methods, there does seem to be some evidence that when Chicago limited its height, it was actually beneficial to, uh, to New York. Yeah, New York so, landowners were lobbying Chicago politicians also. It's too dangerous, <laughs> these tall buildings. You guys have a fire problem. You don't have good yeah. fire departments. you got to have <laughs> lower buildings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that might be true. But in New York, um, the real estate community was dead set against height regulations. And so the, the only way to kind of bring uh, a large enough coalition on board was to, instead of regulating uh, heights by having a cap, they essentially regulated the shapes of the building. So in 1916, New York City implements the first comprehensive zoning codes. And there there were actually three components to this. Um, One is regulating the shape of the building. uh, And I can explain that a little bit more in one second. The second part was just limiting the building, uh, the, the uses of different neighborhoods. So... Some neighborhoods, you know, especially out in the outer boroughs, were just zoned for residential and, and also f- for low-rise residential. And, um, and the third one had to do with how much um, lot area, how, much, uh, how big the footprint of the building could be relative to the lot area. Well, for skyscrapers, the, the big issue was the, the setback requirements. So rather than having a height cap, the rules said that uh, based on the width of the street, there, there, was, uh, there was two components. One is the width of the street, and the second component was, uh, it was a, a multiple number that the city determined when they created these zoning maps. So a multiple number of two meant that a building could rise straight up two times the width of the street, and then it had to be set back a certain amount, and then it could rise up and had to set back and so forth. Uh, except that um, a tower was permissible. A, uh, in other words, the building could have a high-rise tower that could go as tall as the developer wanted, as long as it didn't have, as long as the uh, the floor area of the tower was was less than a quarter of the lot size itself. So that regulated the shape of the building. Yeah, that gives the distinctive yeah. shape of many New York buildings, which I'd never thought about. I always yeah. thought it was just like kind of a safety thing that as the building got taller, you had to make it 
narrower. But of course, the World Trade Centers, uh, the Twin Towers were not like that. They were just straight up. There was no wedding cake look to them. Right. Well, one of the reasons New York City uh, has a bad reputation when it comes to architectural style is because developers, they just prefer, you know, if they have their druthers, if you will, it's the glass box is the most uh, efficient way to build. So the straight up, uh, you have, you know, uniform floor plates, uh, you have uniform materials. Uh, so, you, maximize, uh, you maximize the square footage available for rental. Otherwise, as you make the building narrower at the top, even... yeah. Even if it's aesthetically pleasing in a certain sense, it's um, it's small, less space. Uh, yeah. So in like a kind of a, in a sort of unregulated world, if if you look actually, if you look at the the pre nineteen sixteen buildings, they go straight up. They have because of light issues because um, they wanted to maximize sunlight. They'll have like uh, sort of uh, air shafts that allow for more um, windows on the inside of the building. But by and large, the Woolworth building, it went straight up, whatever, 30 floors, and then it had a tower. And the, the Equitable building, which was completed around 1915, it's the same thing, it just goes straight up. It was, so then after 1916, there were these setback requirements. And the logic was that if you're building uh, very dense and very tall office structures, there's creating a negative externality, it's creating additional congestion, it's blocking sunlight. So the idea was essentially by setting the, the buildings back, you're both allowing for more sunlight on the street, and in theory, you're reducing the number of people that would be in the structure. But I think to your other point is that the zoning, uh, aside from this shape, what I, I call a shape tax, because it's essentially what it was, it was, um, a regu- it was basically penalizing the... Uh, uh, the, the zoning codes are essentially penalizing uh, a just a big square or rectangular building. But um, the other thing it did is basically the the frame the writers of the zoning codes looked around and they said, okay, tall buildings are here in Midtown, tall buildings are here in downtown. Um, so that's essentially where we're going to incentivize our construction, and we're going to create lower multiples in like basically throughout the rest of the city. So multiples of two and a half and two are the highest multiples that were available. In lower Manhattan was two and a half and Midtown was two. And other places like one, for much of the city had a multiple of one, which just meant that um, you had to build up one story. One, I'm sorry, you had to build up, um, you could build up um, a height of, a height equal to the street width and then you had to set back. So that discouraged uh, tall so, buildings. So I understand. So that that's a huge factor. So that kind of locked in, didn't literally lock it in, but it, it changed the economic incentives um, going forward to make it much more economical to build skyscrapers, places they already were, and which yeah. happened to be Midtown and, and Lower Manhattan. The puzzle, it's really a public choice political economy question. Um Developers, you'd think, would push against that constantly, right? So if you – you'd think you'd want to buy land in that middle part where it's nice and flat and not very tall. And you could really make a killing if you could put a big building near Midtown or near City Hall, near the t- lower Manhattan um, on land that's currently zoned for uh, only one, say, or, or you know, one width well, of that, the street. Well, that was – they updated just to, just to – uh, just they updated the zoning code to 61 um, 
So the, the logic is, this, I'm sorry, the, the, the patterns are the same of limiting building height um, in the neighborhoods you're talking about, but the, the, the rules are a little bit different. But, but uh, so go on, I'm sorry. No, so just, it's, it's interesting that, that those, there's a constant tension, and you, it's implicit in your book, about um, the beauty and identity of a city and the opportunities for innovation and change and dynamism. So when I think of, say, um, Florence, Florence today in Italy, I've I've never been there, but my my son was there recently, and I've looked at a lot of pictures he took and that others have taken. It's a gorgeous city. It looks a lot like it looked centuries ago. Uh, There's a reason for that. Uh, It's not just random, I'm sure, that Florence is unchanged. Uh, And New York, there's more of a trade-off. New York's changed a lot. But as you pointed out, after um, Penn Station got torn down in the 60s, replaced by Madison Square Garden, uh, and I, it's a beautiful picture of the old Penn Station. I'd never seen it. It's this <laughs> magnificent or hideous, depending on one's taste, uh, structure. There, there was a, a big movement, for whatever reason, toward locking in and, and historical landmarks being preserved and, and things like that. So there's this inevitable tension, and it's just interesting to me that Say over the last fifty years, uh, certain features of the Manhattan landscape ha- and skyscape have been preserved, and others are right. in constant flux. And you know, one example that you write about briefly is the Hudson Yards project, which is unbelievably enormous expansion of effective land by building over an enormous rail yard, covering it with yeah. a roof through incredible technology, and so on. Uh, yeah, right. So it's almost as if certain areas of Manhattan are on limits and certain areas are off limits. And this creates, I agree, it creates a, 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 a quite a dramatic tension. And because what happens is that the office market, I, I would argue the office market functions fairly well. Uh, I was just looking at the vacancy numbers today for Manhattan offices, and that's something like uh, 9%. Um, so that's, you know, it's not, it's not great. It's not terrible. It's, uh, so in other words, uh, but as, the you point out, areas, as you point out, yeah. I think in the depression, it was just like the human unemployment rate. The office <laughs> unemployment rate was 25% in the mid thirties. Um, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Exactly. So, right. So, so nine exactly. is a relatively low number and, and it's born by buildings. It's not, and the people who invested in them, it's not a human tragedy except indirectly yeah. through lost expectations of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but part of it is uh, there needs to be a certain um, vacancy just for expansions sure. and for you know for turnover and things like this. So, but New York, uh, you know, although there's of course a lag with buildings, tall office buildings, but New York's office market seems to work in accordance with the laws of supply and demand. And part of that is because there's sort of uh, enough areas that are zoned and, um, and encourage, you know, uh, that uh, New York encourages offices in, in, in specific areas of midtown and downtown. It's the problem is that the, um, the market, the residential market doesn't work quite well across all uh, areas. I mean, where midtown is, is where the demand for these super luxury buildings are. And again, the zoning is permissive, of for these kinds of buildings and so um so you know there's a lot of complaints in new york about oh we just see these super tall luxury condos and we have this housing affordability problem well 
you know, and I, I think we, you know, we need to really seriously discuss housing affordability because it's a, a tremendous issue. But um, you just can't deny the fact that uh, much of the city is uh, is kept low rise to preserve the uh, to preserve the, you know, its its, histo- its historical um, character. Um, so. As a result, developers tend to build in areas where the zoning is more permissive and where those are, where the demand for those things, uh, the demand for the buildings in those neighborhoods tend to be the, the, of the luxury variety. Um, so, um, It is an interesting question, though, if you had, you said the, the market, the office space market works pretty well. Of course, not much of a market. As you said, it's partly liberated and partly highly constrained, and it's it's quite funky. But in the pre nineteen sixteen era, uh, before mm-hmm. the zoning and, and shape tax, it was a much more free market. There was all kinds of housing choices. You could live in a fancy place or a not so fancy place. You could live in a tenement. You could live in a high density, very high density dwelling with lots of other people crowded together. And uh, the question now would be, to me, the fascinating question to me would be, if there were no zoning, right. Uh, would Manhattan just be uh, an enormous number of 70-story uh, high-end condos, or would it be a mix of of, of affordability? I mean, it could be that it's just not affordable for, for low-income people to live that close to the high-demand areas of Wall Street, Times Square, and so on. It may, that may be the case. It may be they would be pushed out and find themselves living in Brooklyn and Queens and New Jersey, it's in Connecticut, et cetera. But um, it's hard to know, but I'd love to hear a speculation. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm, okay, speculation is always risky business. <laughs> but, Why? Right, so- Why? We're not going to see it. You're not going to be held accountable. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's nothing okay. to worry about. It's a freebie. <laughs> all right, all right. So here's what I could say. Here's what I could say. What I, I've done an exercise. It's not in the book. It was in a... Uh, uh, I, I, there's a, um, a real estate, uh, website and uh, magazine called the real deal. And so I talk, I, I discussed this little exercise I did with this reporter who wrote about it online and he posted an article online. But what I did was I took real estate prices across, uh, I think I use uh, zip codes and I found, I, I just, I tried to look at the average or I should say the median sale price of real estate. Uh, by zip code across the city. And so if you think of the price of real estate as the indication of what people are willing to pay in those neighborhoods, um, you could then do some some back-of-the-envelope calculations and say, all right, if this costs so much per square foot to build and here's what developers would receive, you could just sort of map out across the city uh, neighborhoods that are completely underbuilt based on the current prices. And the, the, to answer your question is you wouldn't necessarily get 70-story buildings everywhere. Uh, as you go further and further in Manhattan, you would perhaps, you know, the price of space drops uh, pretty quickly as you go away from Midtown and you go into neighborhoods like Washington Heights, for example. Um, and so in those neighborhoods, you would probably get 20 or 30-story buildings. Sure. Uh, and then in some of the, in the Bronx and in Queens, you might get 10 or 15-story buildings. So, but the the demand uh, of a neighborhood just, you know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's certainly true that based on the current prices of real estate, 
um, the demand for much taller buildings exists. Now, what that optimal height is in different neighborhoods is going to depend on the um, on the um, uh, on the, the you know the relationship of the the cost of uh, construction to uh, the ratio of the the income that can be generated relative to the cost of construction. But the the, the real the, one of the big problems is is rent stabilization, and I, I talk about this a little bit in my epilogue in my book. Is um, uh, New York City, you know, in an, in an attempt to preserve housing affordability, uh, initiated initiated rent control after the after World War II, and then that became rent stabilization. So rent control limited the actual amount of rent you pay. Rent stabilization limits the the increases in the rent. Um, and so, and also that gives the right of the tenant to uh, remain. The landlord does not have the legal authority to remove a tenant if they are in a rent-stabilized unit. So that slows down um, turnover and it disincentivizes uh, developers sort of tearing down older buildings and building uh, newer, higher-rise buildings. And there's a lot, there's a big tension in the city about rent stabilization. I mean, obviously, if you have a rent-stabilized unit, you're getting a benefit, and people like that. But a lot of people in New York like it because they think it encourages, you know, neighborhood diversity. And um, you know, it's one of these trade-offs. You have neighborhood diversity, and if people value neighborhood diversity and they value, um, you know, people of different income levels all living in the same neighborhood, then certainly rent stabilization encourages that. And if you eliminated rent stabilization. I think you're right. There'd be a lot more uh, low, people of low and moderate income that would move out to, let's say, Queens or, or, or the Bronx. And um, I, many, many New Yorkers, they feel like they don't want to see that kind of uh, thing unfold to Manhattan. Now, in the very long run, I believe that you can both build uh, many kinds of houses, many kinds of ho- many types of housing to accommodate many different kinds of people. Um, but in the short run or the medium run, I think that if you got rid of rent stabilization and got rid of zoning, um, you know, like in the next 10, 15 years, you'd see this mass exodus of people with low incomes leaving Manhattan. And I don't think New Yorkers, if they're polled about that issue, <laughs> they don't seem to want that to happen. Do you think that's true? So here's the issue for me, and I, I look at, um, you know, I spend some time in Washington D.C. I spend some time in the Bay Area in California. I visit New York from time to time. All three have had massive increases in the price of land over the last twenty-five to fifty years, and you you quantify it very uh, clearly in your book. I think it's from 1993 to 2007 which is a 14-year period, um, land prices in, in Manhattan were rising at over 20% a year. Now, of course, it, it fell after the recession, and I don't know what it's done since, but uh, large metropolitan areas, to be true of Boston, it'd be true of Chicago, they've had huge increases. And my impression is, is that most of that is driven, it's true that people like to live in cities more than they did, say, in 1920, or 1850, but a lot of it's due to restrictions on land use, zoning, and other things. We could argue till the cows come home about whether that's good for preserving the character of the city, the thing I alluded to earlier. But um, I'm going to read a quote from the book. You say, when we think of Manhattan as the ultimate skyscraper city, we ignore the fact that high-rises that constitute 30 stories or more 
or only 1.7% of all buildings on the island. In fact, 70% of all structures on the island have five or fewer stories, while 90% of all structures are 10 stories or less. Manhattan is decidedly low rise. And I think <laughs> basically, you know, your, your comment on rent stabilization and zoning, I think if we got rid of them, the price of land in, in Manhattan would would fall dramatically. Uh, and the cost of renting a, a, any particular size space would fall dramatically. And I understand why current people who live there or who uh, have the privilege of a rent-stabilized apartment want to keep them. I don't. I think a lot of them are not poor, by the way. They're the children and grandchildren of rich people uh, <laughs> who've taken advantage of that opportunity to pass those on to their to their children. Um, but the zoning thing, I think, is would have there'd be an enormous change that that current developers would would not like, and so they're not going to ever politically they're going to fight it. And I think people's intuition that you mentioned might be. That is protecting low-income people, but to me, it's the zoning is privileged. These spaces, San Francisco, Washington, New York, for rich people more or less, because they've artificially increased the price of land through the inability of developers to add square footage. Uh, overall, I agree with that. Um, yeah, no. It's, look at the da- looking at the data, and my understanding of New York City real estate market suggests that. Uh, the so-called elasticity of supply, the ability of developers to build uh, new housing to meet the demand is constrained. And so I agree. We have this issue of demand is rising. Supply is somewhat constrained. So who is going to get access to uh, available housing? Those who can afford to pay. I think in the short run, I, I, I agree with your assessment that in the long run, uh, if a, a more open uh, real estate market was allowed, there would be uh, a much um, a healthier market. You know, you would see vacancies. Uh, vacancy today in, in Manhattan is something like one, on average, is like 1% or something like this. In residential. Um, yeah, yeah. So the irony, uh, just as a side note, the irony of the rent stabilization program is it's designed to help New Yorkers, when there's a housing crisis, which has a vacancy, when there's a vacancy rate below 5%, but then you implement the rent stabilization and it creates a low vacancy, thereby uh, perpetuating the very crisis it was uh, meant to solve. But, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, be the first but, time. Yeah, but, <laughs> but the point is, I think the problem is, in my opinion, the problem is this that the, the, the problem that New Yorkers don't want to face or think about, and I tried to address this in the epilogue of my book is that if you just sort of transitioned uh, from something today which is fairly restrictive to something that's uh, much more uh, open in terms of construction, there would be an adjustment uh, period. And in the short, I believe in the short-term adjustment period, prices would spike up. Um, Prices would spike up. And then as developers... uh, because if you eliminate the rent stabilizations, for example, all of a sudden, you know, the yeah, market sure prices would float. Yep. So the, 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 how long is the long term? Of, you know, how, long, how quickly can we transition from this uh, rapid rise in prices when we open the market to one where prices are then start to fall and stabilize at a more, um, at a more um, you know, at a, at, a, at a more affordable level? It could take, I don't know, it may, could take up to a decade. You know, it, yep, it's hard to know. Sure. And so to me, the issue is how do we go from today to that future period in a decade 
in a way that doesn't really, uh, you know, uh, uh, that doesn't cause a lot of turmoil and pain in the short run. But it, so course, it's just a, yeah. Of course, the other problem is you've got the uncertainty about future regulation, which is always going to, you know, part of the tinkering with rent control and rent stabilization has meant that if you have a plot of land, you don't want to build rental property, you want to build ownership property because you're less likely to be uh, messed around with in the future. You have much more certainty about the flow of, of income from it. And so right. it's just, um, you know, if we if we loosened the zoning regulations over time, which would be my way of dealing with the short-run transition issue, uh, there would always be the uncertainty that it would revert back to what it was before, and it would be hard for um, politicians to keep their promises, uh, which seems to be a... A, uh, well, I have I have two comments though. Uh, one is uh, if New York City's changes, uh, history of making big changes is any guide. Uh, New York City doesn't make changes very uh, yep. very frequently. 1961, <laughs> uh, 1916, 1961. We're still yeah, in do. the 1961 world. And then uh, rent stabilization, 1945 to rent control, and I think it was the 70s. Uh, rent, rent control in the 40s to rent stabilization, maybe in the 70s or 80s. So they don't change very much. That's true. You um, get a good run. But the other, the other thing I want to say that people worry about is if you say a neighborhood that has a lot of five-story apartment buildings is all of a sudden going to become a neighborhood that has a lot of ten-story apartment buildings, then people start saying, well, my schools are already overcrowded. My subway stop is already overcrowded. Yeah. Um, and what I try to argue in the book is if you're going to start making changes to the zoning rules, you have to also consider the services and the amenities that go along with the, uh, these things. And so nothing is in a vacuum. I would say you can't just change rent control and can change zoning and then say you've solved the problem. Well, you have to also consider the host of, uh, you know, neighborhood related issues and, and, and schools and access to, to transportation and these things. And, and this is, I think, is just more than any politician is willing to consider at this time. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and I'm going to read uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book. Um, you say, uh, and this is a beautiful example of how the city and the skyline's emergent rather than designed. You say, the rise and growth of the skyline must be viewed as a system of interrelated parts. One group's decisions influence another group's whose subsequent decisions feedback and influence the rest. To put it succinctly, the battle for place leads to a land dance, a kind of multiple partner waltz around space. Each tries to be the leader and take the dancers in a particular direction, only to get a response to go in a different direction, and so on. The location, heights of buildings, and land use types form as a response to what is being built in other parts of the city. The microeconomy of a neighborhood is a result of a kind of economic dialogue with other neighborhoods throughout the city. To understand the skyscraper, we need to understand its opposite, the tenement. And I think that's a beautiful description of how markets work, uh, and we don't give them much of a chance to work very well in places like New York because, as you point out, well, someone usually would have to design public schools since we don't allow private uh, – we have public schools as the default in, in uh, our cities. So someone would have to figure that out. The subway is public transportation. Politicians have to figure that out. So the opportunities for emergent solutions – uh, to the challenges of, say, taller buildings, or it's going to be limited. So one way to think about it, we'll close on this, is is Houston. So my understanding is Houston has a lot less zoning. My guess is that as the hundreds and thousands and probably millions of more people have moved to Houston over the last 25 years, I would guess the price of living in Houston hasn't gone up 25% a year. Uh, and 
The result is a city that's very affordable, but not as charming as New York. But that could be for other reasons as well. So New York is more like a museum, and Houston's more like uh, a rainforest to me. So uh, why don't you comment on that, and we'll we'll end there. Uh, well, I can't speak to the to the market in Houston, but um, the one thing I can say the differences are is that the um, New York metropolitan region is you know, there's very little vacant land. And so in some sense, the city's closed. So the question then becomes, how do you open up the city? How do you make it more, uh, how do you make the real estate market more dynamic without, you know, obviously uh, upsetting people's desire to have, um, uh, you know, a, a neighborhood character and, and, yeah. and things like that. Houston, um, I, actually my sister and her family used to live out in uh, in a suburb of Dallas. And so when I go visit them, I would see these signs uh, these ranches that just said uh, zoned for real estate. So in places like Houston and Dallas, it's still an open city in many respects. Yeah. It's still that as the price of housing increases, let's say closer to the center, farmland can then be converted uh, to residential. Uh, you don't have that kind of dynamic here just because the area is so dense and so built up. And um, well, it's an island. And <laughs> As you point yeah. out. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, so the question for us is not how do we uh, mimic Houston, but how do we devise, devise solutions for New York um, that, you know, mitigate the affordability given this, uh, given that New York is, uh, like you say, almost 400 years old. So uh, that's my thought. <laughs> my guest today has been Jason Barr. His book is Building the Skyline, the Birth and Growth of Manhattan Skyscrapers. Jason, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Oh, thank you. It's been been really excellent. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.